Hey, welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting and enjoying a cup of coffee, or doing whatever it is that you do, I am glad you're here. Welcome to the Brewcast, everyone. I am joined today by my good friend, the Reverend Gail Doring. She is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and has served a number of congregations as pastor, associate pastor, and interim pastor. She is currently serving as the transitional executive presbyter for the Southern Kansas Presbytery. For non-presbys out there, the presbytery is our regional council of churches in a, in a geographical area. For instance, here in the northern two-thirds of Arizona, I am a member of the Presbytery of Grand Canyon. So we had a great conversation. Unfortunately, the audio is a little off. I tried recording on Zoom. Probably not going to do that in the future. So uh, some of the sound got a little distorted on my end. Um, Gail sounds fantastic, of course. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation. We kind of went all over the place, but most of it was on what is kind of the state of the church right now in the United States, at least from a Presbyterian perspective. So enjoy the conversation and uh, thanks for joining us. Gail, welcome to the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. It's, and it's good to see you. It's been a while. Too long. Too long. Oh, also, I should probably mention Gail and I went to seminary together at the former San Francisco Theological Seminary. Uh, we'll, but we don't have to talk about that today. That's a whole nother <laughs> spaghetti soup of mess. Um, anyway, but we've continued to be good friends over the years and um, even get together every so often. But it's been a long time and I've been thinking and I was just talking to uh, Wendy Kamori Stager, uh, that I think it's time we try and figure out how to get one of those grants that helps clergy get together again. If we can ever get together again, yeah, that would be great. I'm thinking in a year, in a year or two, after we get the vaccine and everybody's healed, right? Indeed. So, but you're so good at finding those grants and applying. So, you're sort of our our grant whiz. So, we depend on you. It's like a money money grabber, you know, that's that's, (laughs) money That's my title. Do you, when you lead worship, do you wear that necklace with the lit up dollar sign in the front? Yeah, yeah. It's just me and Dr. Dre or whoever. I saw, you know, actually, I, I saw a minister do that. Like, he wore that every week. Get out. And whenever it was time for the offering, he would light it up and it would blink. <laughs> it was creepy. Okay. Anyway. Um, so, this is your first foray into the whole mid-council executive yeah. presbyter gig. How, how is that going? How is mid-council life treating you? Well, you know, to pack up um, a full van load of stuff, get in an automobile, um, you know, sort of go and do a memorial service for my father-in-law and continue to drive east across the country arrive in Kansas on February 27th, start work on March 1st, and have the governor say on March 15th, oh, everyone should stay home. In a, in 
a, a manner of working where one is the biggest thing is to make relationship and to be out meeting churches and pastors and knowing what's going on in the presbytery. Uh, it obviously made that transition uh, different and more challenging than it maybe already would have been. So uh, that's the starter. Um, every day, though, honestly, as I look at your very intimidating microphone, where you know we were all trying to struggle just how to get me to be in some sort of acceptable sound mode, I every Sunday morning wake up and just almost get down on my knees and thank God that I am not serving a local parish right now. Um, because I can go in where everything's set up and I can tape a sermon for a church if a pastor needs to get vacation. Uh, I can resource people on, oh, hey, there's a grant out here from Presbyterian Disaster or, oh, maybe you could look at this online education for what it's like to lead in a time of a pandemic and not have to do the every Sunday meeting the needs and the very diverse needs of a congregation where people are yelling, I, I want to go back to church. No, we shouldn't go back to church. I'm afraid. No, I'm not afraid. I kind of like it that we're online and I don't know if I ever want to go back to church. It's like, it's, it's confusing. Um, are you getting but, that from pastors or parishioners or? All of the above. All of the above. Yeah. You know, I was just having, actually, I was just talking to our friend, Wendy, who um, I'm hoping to get on the brewcast at some point. Um, She was talking about how we were talking about how different sessions, the count, you know, church councils, for those of you who are non-presbys, we call it the session, the uh, board of elders, they, how some of them are fighting like over whether they should go back to church or not, like every week, every month. I've been so lucky I went to my session at the beginning of March and I said, you guys, we got to shut down. This is, this is getting real. And they're like, yeah, totally. No questions asked. And we did not have worship that, that first Sunday, which I think was March 15th. Um, We made that decision Thursday and we sent an email out to the congregation. I sent a little email out Sunday in lieu of worship, just, Hey, everybody, we're working on something. And I, that week I spent all week, basically trying to craft an online we, we're doing it via YouTube. So everything's pre-recorded. I edited everything. I, I, I didn't want the technology to get in the way of worship. And I, I was so afraid because people just weren't, I I've been using zoom for years. I was afraid that people just weren't going to be able to get on there and do zoom anything live. Like that it was going to be clunky. It was going to be just not very well done. And so I didn't want that to get in the way of people's worship experience. So basically I went to the sanctuary and recorded the service and we were able to back then we were still recording the music in the service. We stopped, went um, Easter Sunday was the last Sunday we did that. And now everything's recorded separately. Um, but in August, now that everybody's become zoom professionals <laughs> in our congregation yes. um, in, in mid August, actually um, I'm planning on, introducing to our congregation, although some of them may be hearing this next week, so they might know this now, but anyway, we're going to be transitioning to a zoom style worship. It'll still be simulcast like on Facebook and or YouTube, one of the two places. So they'll be able to watch a video of us zoom, zoom worshiping together. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been quite a transition overnight. What was it? What did somebody say overnight pastor suddenly turned into 
video production professionals. Yeah. And, yeah. and with varying degrees of success. And I mean, I have all my video equipment. I already have all this stuff. So it was a pretty easy transition for me, but it's been, uh, and I've been getting calls from people going, well, how do you do? How do you, how do you? And I'm like, well, okay, let's just work with what you have. Do you have an iPhone or, or smartphone or Samsung? Yes. Then that's your camera. Use it. Well, you know, um, one of our that's good okay. friends also from seminary, Debbie Whaley, that's what she does. You know, every Thursday, she just puts up her cell phone in front of her and records a sermon. And then fortunate enough to be in a, in a larger church where, she has video production type people who can edit and plug in and do what they're doing. I've been surprised actually in the middle of the, what a lot of people refer to as the flyover uh, that churches have been as adaptive as they have been able to be. Some of them surprisingly so some of them have said, I'm never doing technology. We should never live stream a worship service. That's, you know, it's heresy. And as soon as COVID hit, they're, oh, this is what we have to do. So now they're doing it. I have a pastor kind of out in a a moderately medium to small size town. He had no equipment. His church had no abilities. But his second job was to do basketball and football announcing for the local high school. Well, guess what? The local high school is not doing broadcasting. So he took all their equipment and moved it into the church and does all of their uh, service streaming with high school equipment that's not being used. I don't know if I should say that because who knows. You say, is public. he paying the high school? Uh, let's <laughs> not know. say where that is or what. No, I'm not saying know. where it is. No, yeah, I just we'll think that, that it's, it's, a, it's a model of how resourceful people are being uh, when they have to be. And, and discovering that maybe it's not quite as bad as they thought that would be. And that it's surprising who can and who can't. You think, uh, should I tell you that when we were doing everything on Zoom, we were getting ready for General Assembly and they were having all these trainings and all these meetings ahead of time to tell us all of what was going to happen. General Assembly, by the way, for all of you non-Presby's out there, the national uh, biannual all, all meeting of, of all, yeah, all two of them, right? Because um, the other three are Presbyterian, but go ahead. <laughs> so, so we, we're on a, we're on a video conference and, you know, the joke is sort of that people don't quite get the etiquette down and I can be a little snobbish about some things. And so, I had Damn. gotten so t- I know I had gotten so tired of being in the same chair in the same setting. So I thought, well, I'm going to move into my bedroom <laughs> to pretty much just listen to this broadcast in which Jay Herbert and Diane Moffat and all these people are presenting our national stated clerk and other officers of the Presbyterian Church USA. And about 20 minutes in, somebody else is talking. And then about 10 minutes after that, I went, wait a minute, there's another voice. And I realized I had fallen asleep in the meeting. Thank God I had turned off the video and the microphone because I would have been mortified. (laughs) 
but you know, so it can happen to anybody, you know, meanwhile, I've got people, you know, saying, Mildred, I need help. And she, you know, comes into the room and sets the camera for her husband and walks back out again and whatever. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a still, funny thing. Yeah. I still have that with some of our, with some of our folks, but by and large, I, I was surprised and, and I don't, maybe I'm bragging a little bit about my congregation. I mean, we're definitely an older congregation. Vast majority of the folks are retired. How quickly we were able to transition. I mean, within a week we were on YouTube before we, we closed the campus session had already met three times on zoom. Wow. I mean, some of my session members are executives in their field. So they are used to zoom style meetings. Many of them were not, but they were able to jump on and able to, I've sent out instructions. This is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to set it up. I was so shocked and so surprised that within a few weeks, the deacons, the committees, uh, Bible study, or what me, you know, I'd lead a, a quasi Lectio Divina style Bible study on Wednesday mornings. Um, everybody was able to jump on in fairly short order. I was, I was shocked and I was, I was pleasantly surprised how quickly we were able to transition to that. Whereas before, like you said, Hey, what if we had session on zoom every other month? Oh no, we got to meet him. And now the pe- same people that were complaining about anything video live streaming the service, I, I couldn't get for five years. I've been for six years. I've been trying to get us to live stream the service. Nothing. Now people are like, this is great. <laughs> Can we do this even after COVID? Because, you know, back then we were thinking COVID might last into the fall and then we'll be done. Mm. Ha ha ha. <laughs> you know, now we're looking at least a year, if not more. I mean, my session is like, we're closed until next summer. I mean, we're closed until further notice, but they're looking at, hey, we're not going to open up till at least next summer at this point. Do you have medical, you have medical people in your church? Not, I mean, yeah, I have a couple. Why? Not doctors. Oh, I just I want- A couple of nurses. A few yeah, nurses. And it- we have a, a woman who's an executive, I won't name her, but there's somebody in the church, uh, in the nation, who actually was uh, a medical doctor and was in infectious diseases and oh, really? started her job not all that long before COVID. And she will often say, you know, if ever there was a time for me to be called to be a middle governing body leader wow. with my skill set. Uh, and she, she gets on one of our calls. She doesn't come on that often, but when she does, man, it's, it's just a wealth of knowledge. You know, the other thing that makes me think about too, though, because my particular geography is so spread and I have, I have city that is, I'm in Wichita. It's actually a city of 390,000 people, not as small as some people might think. And then I have small towns, college, small towns, all the way out to the west where there's almost nothing and towns of i've driven through that nothing yeah 800 to 2500 people and not another town could be 50 70 miles to the next nearest town not just city town and some of those folks you go out for miles and miles and miles you don't even have cell phone coverage so some of them really are technically very challenged just yeah. by their region. 
And, and one of the pastors in one of those churches would type his sermon. I think, I don't know if he's still doing it because some of the really tiny churches have gone back, but was typing his sermon and snail mailing it to every one of his members. Like on a typewriter? Well, on a word, oh, no. right? on a computer, not on a typewriter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but, but still would, would print it out and mail it to them. And I thought, wow, that is, that's a lot of work, especially for somebody who now doesn't necessarily always write out her entire sermon or manuscript to begin with. Uh, but, but that, again, that's not technology, but it's kind of this thing. It is about technology. People meet it. Well, yeah. And meeting each other where they are versus it right. has to be this one gold standard. Uh, and no, and I've, I, I have a number of friends who are in more rural areas and they're like, you know, my folks, they're not going to get on YouTube. They're just not. Yeah. And to have that expectation uh, was, was misreading the culture. And so they're, that's exactly what they're doing. They, they, it's more of a letter. They're, they're, they, a couple of them have sort of even, they even started, you know, dear, dear parishioners, dear church. And they'll actually start that. And every week they're doing a dear church. And it's beautiful, and the feedback, and people are writing back. Oh, wow. Snail mail. Wow. U.S. mail. I don't like to call it snail mail. That's derogatory to our postal service mm. people. But, you know, it, yeah, and, and they're writing back, and they're having dialogue. Well, it's just between them and their pastor, but still, they're having dialogue. But then they're getting on the phone and calling their neighbor and saying, hey, did you get the pastor's, you know, thing? And they're having all these phone conversations they found out. People are connecting more now than they even did before in some places. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, some of the folks that I've talked to, they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm having all these video calls now with everybody. I'm doing Skype or hangouts or whatever they're doing. You know, I've got 80, 90 year olds. They're like, Oh yeah, I'm talking to people on video every day. Now they never did that before. Right. Or they're making phone calls because they're just lonely and bored. Although most of our retired folks are like, you know, the only thing changed is we go to the store grocery store at six in the morning. Cause that's when they have the, it's open just for seniors. Yeah. yeah. You know, they said really not much has changed uh, and they can't see their grandkids and they can't see family. And that's, that's wearing thin on them. And some of them have said, you know, if we do these precautions, I think we can do this and they're making, they're making it work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people are actually oddly getting actually more connected in some ways. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And and in some ways, the I don't know about you, but the the online presence, sometimes I can be on calls all day and be really energized, but other times couple of couple of zooms and I am I'm done for the day. I am exhausted. But I do yeah. find that then I have a lot less of the other surrounding that that is our my schedule is just so different because then at the end of the day there's i can't go and pile on a bunch of other activities because there's not anywhere to go there's not i can't go to the movies i can't go and and kind of finding like i don't really miss all of that um there's something sort of refreshing about oh i'll pick up that book that's the 20th one in the pile and read that instead of going out and finding some distraction. Um, I'm waiting for the term zoom fatigue to make it into the mm-hmm. DSM or whatever 
thing, mm-hmm. the diagnostic psychology yeah, that- thing. <laughs> Zoom fatigue. The manual. I, I, I actually, you know, sadly, I found myself going to actually more meetings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I can so easily. I don't have to drive half an hour or 45 right. minutes or whatever right. it is. I can go to all these meetings now. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't want to <laughs> go to all these meetings. <laughs> Do yeah. you do you find yourself picking up also whatever your you know interest du jour, but so much uh, material out there in terms of oh we'll we'll put a Zoom learning session about this or somebody's going to speak about and every topic there's just dozens and dozens. Yeah, and that well, I mean it's it's a two edged sword. Yes, but then there's also like we're really connected with Presbyterian border ministry here, mm-hmm. um, especially the Frontera de Cristo Presbyterian border ministry in Douglas, Arizona and Agua Prieta, Sonora. They're putting out some cool stuff and now I can go. Now yeah. I can participate. Whereas ordinarily it would be a four hour drive for me to get down there. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, yes, I'm getting a lot more of that. I'm having to be very judicious about, you know, I would love to go that at, but I just don't have the bandwidth. Ha 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 ha. Little joke there. <laughs> I, I see I, what you did there. See, did you see what I did there? Did you see what uh-huh. I did there? I don't, I, I don't have the mental bandwidth to, it's like, okay, I, I've already been to four Zoom meetings today. I, I just don't. And also I've been spending, unfortunately the way I'm doing worship also is just way too much time uh, because I record the music and then I have to spend however many hours editing. So I, what would normally be done in an hour, hour 15 worship is now a seven to eight hour production. And so, yeah. So, and that's the other reason why we're moving to Zoom is because one, it'll get people interacting a lot more and I'm mm-hmm. crafting some ways within our service to do that so that people can actually see each other. We can actually do the prayers of the people. We used to do the pass the mic thing and we can get back to that now with Zoom. Uh, whereas with YouTube, we can't. So that's the main thing is people will be able to see and interact with one another. And I think it'll help with our fellowship time. We've been doing a zoom fellowship after the service. And so we get maybe 20 people, 20, 25 people. I'm hoping that will be much expanded because people will already be in the room. They'll be there already. So we'll be able to do more of that. Um, but also just the amount of production time that it took for me to, you should see our sanctuary. It looks like a studio. Uh, it's got lights and cameras and it's all, all, all the crap that is normally filling my office here at home is now all at work <laughs> in the sanctuary. But well, it, I, I guessed I was a guest preacher at one of our churches here in town last week and they do they're actually their larger service they do outdoors so they just decided oh it's summer we'll we'll do social distancing and we'll do a parking lot worship and so that was fine and then they go inside for their second service hardly anyone there maybe maybe there were 10 people in a sanctuary that holds 250 but that they also do their recording and that's where they stream for that service and also looks like a studio in there. And on top of it, what I found out is that the folks that are volunteering within their church to do all of this, uh, bring every bit of equipment. The church has none of the equipment. So they bring it all in every single week. Oh no, I just left mine up. And cart it all out. Yeah, no, I left mine up. Yeah, yeah. 
because they have to have it for work and for home. Well, we can't do outside work. It's 115 degrees is the high today. No, oh, yeah. It's a dry heat <laughs> as we head into monsoon season, which it won't be anymore. But our monsoon season is like everybody else's regular summer. So, but it's 115 degrees. So we can't really do outside. We've talked about doing that maybe in the fall or, or spring, depending on how it is. But anyway. Climate change. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, no, it's Arizona. It's, we're in the desert. I mean, mm-hmm. it's always been 110, 115. A couple of years ago, we got up to 120, which was really rare. But it does, I mean, it is the desert. So, although evidently this all used to be oceans. So, I, I don't I don't know. What what people can't see is my face contorting going. That is just not really right or humane at all. So in, in Kansas, Toto, mm-hmm. we are back in Kansas. Mm-hmm. What, how have... Clicked my heels. There you go. What, um, you're in contact with all these churches and the pastors, and what are you seeing out there as far as how churches are not only dealing with the pandemic. I mean, what's the overall tone? What's the morale? But also we've got this whole Black Lives Matter thing that has exploded. The racial um, uh, awareness has exploded. Um, We seem to be increasingly um, divided with regards to partisan politics. And I'm very Mm -hmm. careful to say not just politics, but partisan politics, because politics is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's just how we communicate and how we decide how we're going. We all agree to drive on the right side of the road. That's, that's politics, right? Right. How we're going to live, how are we going to drive, how are we going to live together and be safe and, and figure out how this is going to work. So partisan politics, are you getting a sense of where churches are at with just so much going on? We're heading, you know, we're in the midst of an election season, which seems to be lasting two years instead of six months, like it used to. Mm -hmm. How are people dealing with it? How are pastors dealing with it? Once again, I would first off say all over the map. If you were to plot sort of a, if it was just a straight linear or even a a heat map that had more dimensions than just a, a line that says you're over here or you're to one end or the other or somewhere in the middle, uh, well, what are some of the highs and everywhere. lows? What are, what are some of the high points? Like, hey, this is where this stuff is. Here's an example of um, some ways that this stuff is going well. And here are some examples of where it's not. Without yeah, divulging I, I, no, confidential no. information, of course. Oh, right, right. I'm, I have to stop and oh. think about that for a second. Yes. And can I get you to lean in a little more? Yeah, yeah. There you lean go. The sound, the sound was moving away. Oh dear. Lean in, lean into your experience, Gail. Because I was thinking. And so then, you know, that's like, I have to lean out to think and then lean in to speak or something like that. Yes. Um, So something that's going well, I mean, I think I already said just the sort of the, some of the adaptive challenges don't, don't sort of go in those more traditional dividing lines of, uh, I mean, dare I say, you know, I think we have a lot of language that's not very helpful in even establishing, for instance, um, well, just think about it, it, this general assembly, when we answered 
when they, because I don't have a voice or a vote in those assemblies, but when they answered the question in the survey of uh, establishing quorum, the, you know, are you progressive? Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you evangelical? You know, and I'm going, wow, I don't even think those are all, well, first of all, they're not all theological terms, but they're also not all sort of of one category of either or. They, they're sort of a mishmash Spectrum. of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, I looked at it for myself, even though I wasn't voting and thought, well, I could probably at some point in my life claim all or at least all but one of those. I'm an evangelical conservative time. liberal progressive. Yeah, exactly. In the reform well, tradition. <laughs> with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. Amen. Um, Bridget, sister. <laughs> snap. But <laughs> uh, those are part of the ordination vows that we take for ministers of word and sacrament, elder and deacon. Will you serve with what is it again? You just rattled energy, those off. Energy, intelligence, intelligence, imagination, imagination. love. I can also. Yeah. And somebody, I couldn't. I wondered, somebody actually proposed some years ago that they also add a sense of humor. I think that one. I heard. Fun. Yeah, I heard about that. I'm, I'm glad they didn't do that, but it was fun yeah. to at least ponder the idea yeah. even for a moment. Sometimes it's good to just have overtures and suggestions just to just to say, you know, gosh, that would be fun. Yeah, we're never going to do that, but that would be just fun. Just to, to think prod about. a little bit. Just to <laughs> prod a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but um, I would say that the, the things that feel like they're going well, you know, people's attitudes about church, there's just this overwhelming sense of it's hard everywhere. It's no longer like it's going really well over here in this part of the country or over here in this particular uh, uh, way that people do church or some particular denomination or some particular, um, you know, set of rubrics and, and isms, everybody is struggling. So there's both a sense of can be, I think a sense of despair in that, but also I think there's some camaraderie and some sense of, Oh, so, this isn't just me. Like I'm not the one who created this problem all by myself. Um, and so sensing a little bit more, just a tiny bit, it's not, it's really small, but a little bit more willingness to be open to collaboration, not quite so territorial because frankly, I, I mean, I have probably said this for 10 years now, if we maintain a sense of I have to do it all on my own and be this sort of cut out siloed entity all by myself with my brand on it, we're probably not going to get far because it's just, it's too hard to make it now. And what I see, for instance, I have about uh, four or five churches out in the West. Three of them are, they're almost microscopic in their size. I mean, they're very, very small. And then one church that's a little bit larger uh, in, a, in a small city, 
and they're all probably within 40 to 50 miles of each other. And they meet periodically. They have a steering team. They are not doing ministry altogether. They're too far apart to do that but they are supporting one another, uh, sometimes share some leadership in terms of who moderates their governing body, that is their session, or helping one another with pulpit supply or educational opportunities. And then they get together and fellowship and share in corporate worship maybe once a quarter. Uh, and they have some folks who are leaders one, one person who's been a champion for rural ministry, and then he actually has a, uh, coined his own term. He says the churches out there are not rural. They're deep rural. And mm. I think that's a really, that, uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's out in the middle of nowhere. And when you and start a beyond talking, that, <laughs> uh, yeah. When you start talking about the downside, I think one of the, difficulties in the work I do is how is a presbytery relevant, let alone the national church? It's just, it's, it's like speaking foreign language. And the only way that I've so far been able to carve out anything is to just be relational and just say, uh, I'm here. I care. I will come, I'll show up when you ask and, and have a reciprocity. If you need something or you're, you're struggling with something and you want to talk about it, call me. Um, well, over our, I, the statistic that gets thrown around and I don't know how accurate it is, is over half the churches in the PCUSA are quote rural under a hundred. Yes. So that's, that's the majority lot. of our, not the majority of our, Membership necessarily, I don't know where that fits, but the majority of our congregations, though, which is huge. Right. And frankly, there's, I, I, I'm, I absolutely am not claiming to be an expert, but it's also really difficult for some of our churches to find those resources within our body. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I'm claimed by at least one other denomination, uh, give a shout out to the United Church of Christ mm-hmm. and UCC. UCC, which I was raised UCC theological cousins, <laughs> theological cousins. And sometimes um, probably, you know, using those unhelpful terms I talked about before, seen as being a little more liberal and on the edges than, than even the PCUSA, but it's surprising to me, especially in this particular time, there's just been a lot of practical resourcing that they have been doing both through video. Yeah. They put out some good stuff. And they just did one about rural church. And I looked on the website to try to find something through the PCUSA and I couldn't find anything written hmm. before 2015 or after 2015, I should say 2015, 2017. That's because they're allowed to just go do stuff with us. We have to, it has to go through legal. Yeah, it has to go sure. through, but it's gotta be a committee and their general assembly. They just do stuff. 
I mean, that's, that's kind of the beauty of the congregationalist system is that they, I mean, in, in some ways they are more disconnected, but in other ways they are way more, um, they're, they're more free to just do stuff. I think we can do that within our system. We just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the resources we have in the PCUSA, you would think that we would be able to put out some pretty freaking awesome stuff. And we don't, our curriculum sucks. Everything that comes out of Louisville just isn't helpful. I, I, I rarely use anything that comes out of Louisville. So a few things from Westminster, John Knox, but that's a different, that's a whole nother ball game. They put out, but right. the Presbyterian publishing, it's just not high quality. I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. So now I'm talking to your chin. Can you tilt your camera or your? Oh, yeah. Hey, there we go. Now I can see you. I don't want to say it while you were talking because I wanted you to keep going. <laughs> but well, I've been looking at your chin this whole time. Nobody anyway, can sorry. see me anyway. <laughs> no, but I can. And it was just like, okay, I'm not gonna, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just let her talk. Let her talk. Because you were saying good stuff. I mean, but that's the thing though. In UCC, um, Lutheran, um, what's their publishing? Ab- Abing- Abington. Isn't that Lutheran? Right. Or is that, yeah. Yeah. They put out some awesome stuff. You would think with our, where's the imagination in those ordination bows? Sparkhouse. Have you done Sparkhouse? Yeah. I mean, they're independent. They're not yeah, I know. Presbyterian, but I'm talking about, yeah, there's a lot of resources out there that are Sparkhouse. I, I like their stuff. It kind of gets old after a while and that, it's just the same thing over and over again with different topics. Um, but so we do a variety of that, the, the Bible project, which is awesome. Their videos are incredible. Um, mm. I've been using their stuff for actually my UKirk, the campus ministry. Um, we use, uh, I've been using some of that, the Sparkhouse stuff with the duck being shot out of the cannon and all that weird little intro stuff. It kind of gets, it's like, okay, it was funny the first few times after a while, it gets kind of annoying. But they still put out good stuff and they put out, they're asking good questions and that's what I appreciate. Where is that in the Presbyterian church? Yeah, I, I, I always want to be careful. How do they not, how do, how are they not mining the resources that we have in the church? I don't understand that. So our, um, I don't know if I can throw, uh, yeah, I also am nervous about, like, I throw down a name, I'll just do it, and, you know, we can, I can apologize later, but I'm in don't the worry, Synod there's of, only five people listening, remember? Oh, so, right, okay, yeah. so, so the Synod of Mid-America is my synod, which is, just again, for the two non-Presbys listening, uh, is the that next larger bigger. regional so body. At minimum, at least three Presbyteries can make up a synod, so yes. Exactly. Synod of the Southwest is four Presbyteries in Arizona and New Mexico, for instance. Right, and we are, we are five, I believe it is, and it would include Missouri, Kansas, Illinois, and maybe a corner of Nebraska somewhere along the line, I'm not sure, but three or four states. And when I started interviewing to come to Southern Kansas, Landon Witsit, who is the Senate executive for the Senate of Mid-America, mm-hmm. said that you will hear from your presbyters that your presbytery has a money problem. That is, you know, a scarcity. We don't have enough money. And he says in re- response or reply, they don't have a money problem. They have a mission problem. And I wonder if 
in some ways the denomination is the same. I, I hadn't really been in touch with the level of finances that are floating around in the various entities of our denomination. I am not commonly sitting around since my technology days talking about anything in the terms of millions, let alone billions of dollars. Yep. I mean, some of it's designated for very sure it is. specific, ultra specific purposes, but yes, there right. that we have, we are still, I believe, and we keep switching places with the Episcopal church. We are the, at least per capita, we have the highest income. We're the richest denomination with regards to wow. per capita income of our actual parishioners but we only give an average of 2%. Wow. 2 to 3%, I think, is the average for Presbyterians. I don't know how they figured that out, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the statistic that I keep. Right. Well, around. I had a church that before I came, one of our churches closed, and I don't know how many people they were down to, but and it really wasn't even, I think, it's so much a matter of people as it was, they had no leadership and no, they had no gumption, no, no energy to move forward. So they made uh, the decision to go about closing the church. And right when they were at the finalizing stage, they discovered that some woman in their congregation had died and left them $240,000. But again, wow. not a money problem. It was too late. So yeah. then, you know, that but, you know, money, but then I see churches that have like 15 people and they're doing these amazing ministries. Yeah. And they're like, why would we close? We're doing awesome ministry. There's only 15 or 20 of us, but we're doing great. And other churches have like 60 and it's like, oh, we're dying. We better let's mm-hmm. close the doors mm-hmm. now. I, again, I, I think you, I think Landon is, and Landon is a very smart individual, but he, I think he's you on, get him on here. Um, well, he's on my list. I just haven't had okay. to call him. I need to get a few under the, under the, you know, under the uh, posted before I can say, Hey, Landon, come on the broadcast, man. Under your, under your belt. Under your belt. Yeah. I was trying to think of like under the rug. No, that's not the right phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Shove anyway. it in the closet. No, no, no. <laughs> Wait, that's no, that's the wrong phrase no. too. No, I, you know, the, we do, I think I, and I think the church in general, and I think if we talk to people like, you know, the Diana Butler Basses, if um, the Phyllis Tickles, God rest her soul, if she was still around. Mm. And I think, you know, if we were to talk to those folks, I think the biggest issue is we've lost our way. We've lost our sense of purpose. You know, you, you were talking about churches that, you know, are so far apart from one another, you know, back in the day, before phones back in the buggy day, they would go travel days to connect once every year or so in these large, huge presbyteries, especially in the West um, to, for several days of meeting. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't Robert's rules all the time. It was a lot of it was just fellowship and just hanging out. I go to general assembly. So the big thing is I have in my terms of call vacation, study, leave general assembly. And then people are like, Oh my gosh. And I've had that since probably my first or second year, I was able to talk my way into that. And thank you, Kathy Runyon for giving me that uh, GA junkie bug. Um, But one of the reasons I go is I don't necessarily go always just for the business. I go because it reminds me of who I am and to whom I belong. 
because in the relationships and the best conversations happen at GA after dark, right? When we all hit the bars or we're all just sitting around or even in the mornings we meet for coffee, that's where the church really happens. It doesn't happen in the plenary. It doesn't happen in the committee. I mean, it does. Sorry. I don't mean to discredit that. It does happen in those places. But for me as an observer, it's really happening in those places. When you find it happening in those places that you initially said it didn't, please, please point it out to me. So, so the, okay. So the flip side of that is, uh, you know, the other reason I go to general assembly is because I'm reminded that the Holy spirit works in ways that I don't always like. So mm-hmm. decisions sometimes come out of general assembly that I, you know, there's a lot of people are upset about this last general assembly because it was so truncated. Um, there were a lot of issues that were swept um, pushed off to the 220, whatever, 25th, 25th in, 25th, in uh, yeah. general assembly in, in 2022. Um, they took on a few social justice, justice kind of issues, but they really try to say, Hey, we don't have the ability to, I think they did have the ability. They just didn't have the imagination to make it work. I think they could have done committees. I think they could have done a whole general assembly. Um, Yes. It would have taken a little more work and they could have, there's all kinds of resources beyond Louisville that they could have utilized and they chose not to. And that really, and I could, I even tried to push Jay Herbert on that and he's like, well, you know, he kind of skirted around that question, but the one thing that people at the very end of the assembly, <clears throat> there was a um, a question of um, addressing the plight of black women and girls. Mm-hmm. And there was a vote to try to, um, uh, oh, what's the word? I'm, I'm losing my language here. Reconsider uh, an right. item, the reconsider the, the overture or the, the, the business item that was going to push everything off to the 225th right. General Assembly to right. bring this one issue back onto the floor to pull it from that consent agenda. Um, mm-hmm. giant consent agenda and it failed by 20 votes. So it needed a two thirds and it failed by t- barely, but by just 20 votes. <clears throat> and people were like, Oh, this whole general assembly is, you know, for nothing. They're not doing anything. And people were really upset. I'm like, our denomination just affirmed black, the movement of black lives matter. We, in spite of the fact that we weren't really supposed to, that wasn't on the agenda. Um, we did a bunch of other things that actually pushed our ministry forward. There are always things at every general assembly, they go just up to a certain point and then they pull back and it happens at every assembly. And the challenge that I've been given that I've given myself. And I think God is challenging us to say, Hey, let's be thankful for what did happen, but keep working for what didn't happen. Hmm. And so I go into these committees. I don't often like, you know, we, there was the whole issue of LGBTQ ordination and then it became an issue of marriage. And for years, all those overtures failed. But I listened to the conversations and I was able to come home and say, look, you're going to read this in the New York Times. You're going to read this in, in, in different places. Let me tell you what really happened. And what I heard was people cared about the church. They cared about our ministry. We didn't agree on a significant theological issue, but I'm also watching every year the votes moving forward in a direction that is more inclusive, that is moving toward, I think, the ministry of Jesus, which was totally and radically inclusive. And I was able to witness that over a period of years and give thanks for the fact that we will get there someday. And we did. It took a while. But we got there. And I think some of the other stuff, the racial, you know, we have a lot of work to do in our 90 some odd percent white denomination. You know, 
and, and I'm not disparaging the fact that we're so white because I don't think that's necessarily, um, that's just who we are. Fine. To try and become a multicultural church suddenly overnight, I think we'll probably wouldn't be healthy actually and wouldn't work. <clears throat> but we are getting to the point where we can start, you know, we're beginning the work of apologizing for what the Presbyterian church did to uh, to indigenous folks in this land. We're beginning that process. Um, it should have happened hundreds of years ago, but it wasn't able to happen then, but it's happening now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work that the PCUSA is doing and that actually happened at our general assembly, even this year under the circumstances that I think there's a lot to give thanks for, but to keep working. And the spirit is moving through those things. Even those things I don't agree with, even the things that I think that grieve God, I think there's still movement. And I, that's why I go to general assembly and it reminds me of, we don't have to be perfect. We have to be faithful. And sometimes being faithful means putting on the brakes and saying, slow roll. Let's be intentional about this. That's one thing I love about Presbyterian. This is where Presbyterians, I think, win over congregationalist systems where they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, is there's a lot more intentionality. We're not going to jump on every bandwagon. Um, The UCC has done a lot of stuff that I think, um, and I'm trying to think of an example and I can't right now, but because they're so quick to move, they also are quick to abandon. Yeah. Well, you know, it's looking back, you know, the one, the one time that I was a commissioner to general assembly, I sort of jokingly say that was 2008 and was San Jose. Yeah. So, and, and I always sort of would joke that that was the assembly where we decided nothing, but, (laughs) but what we did decide in retrospect, I was on the committee to review committees, permanent committees. So don't even, yeah. Talk about doing a whole lot of nothing. (laughs) Were you, were you the one, one of my colleagues who was in the San Francisco Presbytery, also a commissioner, was on the Pillip Committee, and they mm-hmm. finished in less than a day. And yeah. I was so, and he played golf. Yeah. And yeah. I was in the Health Committee. Um, so I got to talk about abortion for two and a half days. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, but in retrospect, I look back at that assembly and say, but you know what? We elected Bruce Reyes Chow and Byron Waite as our moderator and vice moderator. And that was a huge shift. In and now look at the, the leadership. But look at, now look at the leadership of the PCSA. Exactly. Exactly. Totally transformed. So, so that, was, that was not a nothing. That was a something. And it didn't happen on one vote either. So it was, you know, it was a significant listening to the the spirit yeah. in the midst of that place and now these years later on one vote we elected yeah. a native american and an african-american co-moderator right one vote slam yeah. dunk and it wasn't very close no it wasn't even close i mean yeah right we've come a long way baby. so so yeah actually <laughs> we still have a long way to go circles. but we've come a long way <laughs> In a fairly well, short amount of time. Back, it circles back, Eric, to, you know, again, to I have to think about the work that I'm doing and that I feel really called to right now. And having just come out of this most recent assembly, like regardless of what decisions were or weren't made and the, um, the struggles and the actually I completely get uh, the... 
the wounding that continues. Uh, and I do, I, I still very palpable memories of LGBTQA too, as, as being, those were really horribly difficult conversations. Yeah. And, um, but then I turn from that where at least the themes of those conversations were predominantly what was happening in our country and our world. Like they, what was what was being discussed and what was being disagreed about and what was happening or not happening was reflecting what was happening externally for the most part, except for that one other little issue about that seminary that we used to go to. But um, no, I, I mean, then it was very in the moment. I mean, that's the reality of a lot of our. Uh, yeah, I that actually is very relevant because a lot of our seminaries are in the same boat. Right. And I turn around and I drive to Western Kansas and once again go, wow, I mean, for the most part, our churches, you talk, I mean, they're in this state, in this region, whatever, the whitest of the white. Uh, um, and, and not only that, but once again, that diversity of opinion and you've got everything from the it, here in mostly it doesn't all get out this way, but some of the most very liberal, staunch liberal um, out for, um, you, you know, for all sorts of issues, all the way to my civil rights, and you're not going to tell me what to do. And, and then thinking about how do we make that conversation even happen? Let alone, like you said, not necessarily overnight changing the demographic but having um, some responsibility and responsiveness to, um, I, I, and I think about it a lot more where I live, indigenous, and I go, well, okay, you know, obviously I'm very passionate about uh, the occupation and Palestinians and right to return, but I sit in my little, fairly humble, uh, way cheaper than anything you could buy in California house in Kansas and go, well, not only am I probably sitting on native land, I may be sitting on, on land where blood has been shed. Yeah. And I'm, if somebody came to my house tomorrow and knocked on the door and said, you're living on my land, what would I say? It, it becomes a whole different question. Well, and the, it's not the something that, you can armchair. The other side of that argument, though, that I hear, and, and, you know, people have been conquered for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And right or wrong, we can debate the ethics and the morality of that. Um, but, I mean, look at what the Roman Empire did. They conquered people left and right. And they were able to adapt and adopt some of the cultures and became this sort of um, multicultural empire with a monolithic culture at the same time. I mean, it was, it, it was a strange and it worked for how many hundreds of years, but a lot of people suffered. I believe there's a better way to be. I think there's a better way that helps everybody be healthy. Um, but it means about the people in power giving up some of the power and the people that don't have a lot of power making their voices heard 
and it's a both and not an either or and a whole group in the middle saying, yeah, we need to do all of this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, there's two sides. There, there are multiple facets to all of these issues, whether it's Israel, Palestine, which goes back thousands of years. This is not just World War mm-hmm. II and the demarcation line. This goes back thousands of years with the people of Israel, um, the ancient nation of Israel, and the modern people of mm-hmm. of, of, of Israel and the modern Jews. Um, Black Lives Matter goes back. Well before we were bringing slaves over from Africa, slavery has been in nearly every culture around the world for thousands and thousands of years. Again, it goes back to that there we there are people there's something inherent in our in at least some people's DNA that makes them not only get power and have power, but then also to use that power to control other people. Mm-hmm. So is our job as Christians, as followers of Christ to undermine that? And some people read the gospel that way, that what Jesus was doing was um, not only counterintuitive, but also it was countercultural and pushing against those regimes, pu- pushing against those, um, those political norms and saying, no, that's not. Um, or is our job to just tell everybody, hey, you know, Paul, if you're a slave, be a slave, be the best slave you can be. It's like, well, is that really the message we should be, <laughs> you know? And, and Jesus is saying, no, set them free. So we have, even within the Christian texts or our holy texts, we have that tension. Um, and, and let alone in, in the Hebrew Bible. So transitioning that to all, we have all these issues, you know, we are, and the General Assembly puts out all these statements about Israel, Palestine and slavery and indigenous and, you know, um, all this stuff. Of course, one of the big questions is who's reading all those statements, not very many people, but it's an incredible, at the same time, it's a treasure trove of theology within those statements that is oftentimes neglected. These churches that are so divided. And then, you know, you talked to, you know, add on top of all that, the how social media actually compounds our isolation because of the algorithms that makes us meet up with people that are like-minded. So we never really get social, social media has almost made us even more fundamentalist in our positions because that's all we're hearing. We're only hearing things that we like. We're not hearing things that we don't like. Um, Some of that depends on who you're connected with your friends. So I'm connected with people all across the spectrum. So I get all of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But for most people, well, it's pretty isolating. I mean, they don't feel they, isolated necessarily. They feel affirmed because they're hearing what they want to hear. And they're hearing right. things like, yeah, that's what I believe too. Well, everybody must believe that because that's all that's that's all I'm seeing on Facebook. Well, yeah, that's because Facebook is shaped that way. So what does that say about what is the purpose, getting back to our earlier conversation, what is the purpose of the church in, in the United States, in the West, in this day and age with all of this stuff going on? In your opinion, as a mid-council leader in all your wisdom. And I do think you're probably one of the wisest people I know. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you are. I said one so, of, not the, just, you so, know, so here's, humble here's, yourself a little bit here. I will. Uh, way more than that. So, so here's, I will start by saying that, um, you know, I came in with a very small and ill-defined job description and 
initially, of course, you know, I'm looking at it from a system level. And then I thought, you know, everybody's gone home and I'm not getting to meet with people. And maybe I should sit down and think, discern a little bit about what is my own, what is my mission? What is my goal um, in this work? What am I called to do? And I, I came down to something that sounds so overly simple, but it was, well, I really hope and pray that when any and ever there is a time when a bunch of Presbyterians are going to get together in this Presbytery. So whether that be a committee meeting or a Presbytery meeting, first one on Zoom in August, God help us all. Um, and we get together for an hour or it's two hours or whatever it is, or it's just two of us meeting. I would pray that we would leave that session knowing one another and God just a tiny bit better. I, mm. I mean, I'm not even looking for, and, and when I say that, you know, one of my interims a few back, and, and this is, they're not isolated in this, but they were particularly given over to their big thing is, Oh, let's have a study group. Let's, let's study, you know, let's study Borg, let's do this, you know, book and that book, and let's have an author speak. And, you know, every time I would meet with them, and I, you know, I can egghead it with the best of them, and it's fun, and I love to read. And, but then I would get down to it, and I would say, okay, you just read Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan's take on the first Christmas. Well, that's great. And book, oh, there are the three, three different narratives. Yeah, right. They've got one on the last week as well. And, but at the end of the day, I would say, okay, fine. We've now deconstructed this whole thing. What difference does it make to you? How is it going to change the way that you live? How are you going to take that and make something out of it? And I find that fundamentally, a lot of us, and I'm going to say us so that I, this is the humility part. We don't want the basic bottom line, which is, I mean, if, if Jesus was inclusive, Jesus was countercultural, then it was about transformation. It was about, if you read, if you just read them, even as stories, encounter after encounter after encounter, it's about people's lives being changed. Mm -hmm. And so when, even when I look at things as serious and as quote unquote political as racism or um, uh, a new term for me, just in the last year and a half doctrine of discovery, it's like, well, I better start doing some really serious looking in the mirror and assessing you know i am slogging and i do mean slogging through uh leila saad's uh, the white supremacy workbook oh, i mean yeah. i am slogging through that thing it's like you're supposed to do one a day and I, maybe sometimes i get to one of five questions i get to number two and i'm like oh i'm done i can't do any more <laughs> today you know it's like yeah, it's a lot. so, but and then and then how do we meet? You know, then how do we meet one another in that? And how do I? Uh, the other big challenge for you know, 
somebody who's wired like me as a uh, extrovert, number one, and number two, as a white girl, it's like, oh, Gail, just shut up and listen. Just like, stop talking and listen. Um, and it's amazing how much learning and I think, you know, ultimate change can come from that. If we just, just step back and listen to one another as opposed mm. to always having the answer first or the, you know, Brene Brown, you know, the other one, you know, like we're, we're so given over to like, it's a bunch of check boxes. I just checked this box. Well, I've got it right. I've got all the rules. I'm following all the rules. I know all the things. And so now I'm right by some standard, but that doesn't Your own, matter. But yeah. 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 Pretty much, pretty much. Well, that's um, the thing, you know, so Eric law, another mm-hmm. name, dropping here Mm -hmm. so he does a lot of stuff on interracial communication intercultural communication actually he calls it um you know he talks about it's it's about talking and listening and some culture uh, different cultures white white culture has a very low context which is why we have to talk everything out we have to talk because we have no body language we don't have the the cultural norms that say an african-american community or latino community there's a lot of nonverbal communication that goes on uh, that sometimes they're not even realizing that they're, that they're a part of. Um, they have, they have Asian cultures, notoriously very high context. There's, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a lot to say a lot. Um, so for us, we have to talk things out, but it's a both. And I think mm-hmm. in respect to respond, it's not just shut up and listen. It's, speak your piece, say what you're thinking, get it out there on the table so we can play with it, but then don't get offended. Don't own it and be willing to listen to what other people have to say as well about it. And it's a both and not an either or, you know, that reminds me of, um, and I, I do this all the time. There's always a list of, at least that's what he says, (laughs) how many ever things, but Angelus Arians, who's the, um, I mean, she she comes out of a Native American tradition and uh, has a book called The Fourfold Way. I don't know if you're familiar Mm, with that or not, but, but, uh, and they're like warrior and peacemaker. And I can't remember what the four are, but that each one of them has an attachment of a phrase and one of them. So it's like the first way is, is show up. Mm. The second one is pay attention the third one, I think, is something about, you know, stating your truth. So, yeah. yeah. And then the last one is letting go or or getting out of the way for the end result. Um, yeah, that's probably a better way I, to put it. I like that. I mean, I really can because it, you're right. It does then because if you enter in a in a different way, which is I'm just going to just, I mean, it's almost then turns out to be like you're shutting down, right? Yes. That's I'm not going to put it out there. You know, I, I also go back to, I mean, our denominational stuff. We've, we've, we've been in a, we've been in times and phases. Once again, I, I harken back to that general assembly and the other really positive thing for me. And I recognized it at the time was that it used to be before the assembly, every commissioner was required to attend an anti-racism training. Mm, You mm -hmm. remember that? Yeah. And I honestly thought that training, and specifically that one, 
was one of the best things I had ever attended put on by the denomination, partly because it was, um, it was done in a multi, uh, it was multimedia. It had multi methods of, of interaction and engaging. And so uh, it met with the, you know, different learning styles. It, it really kind of practiced what it preached. Um, and, and part of it was having some people talk uh, of their own testimonies, whether, um, you know, of their own experience of either as a person of color or as uh, someone who is white, whatever the situation, people of power, people of not power, whatever, what their experience of racism might or have been in some perceptions of power. Mm-hmm. Well. Right. And then, but every time something would be input, then we would turn to each other and we'd have to speak then of our own experience. But it had to be that, you know, there were, I think there were some of those rules about I statements and, and, you know, some moderation around, I, I believe we were, we were self-moderated. I don't think we had a leader at every table, but things about not dominating. And, uh, and then, you know, that was, again, learning, like, I, I grew up in a, I'm in a little bit of a, a seam as far as our own country's history around some of this. And so I had never heard of, um, of redlining before. I didn't know the mm. whole, Oh really? Uh, yeah. The whole real estate yeah. bit was that exposure. That was a very real thing and very overt. Yes. And the film that they showed was completely right on. And then, you know, it flipped me immediately back to my aunt in a very small town. You know, she had a help. She had the help in her home for years. And, you know, that whole thing about one of the family. And I mean, this all just hit me like, like a ton of bricks within the context of that meeting and just being asked to, to recall to have some memory about something that is so easy for us to externalize. And that's where I think sometimes, you know, we say, oh, you know, we Presbyterians, we'll just have a book study, right? But it's so easy to throw that outside of ourselves and just look at it from a more theological or philosophical standpoint and, and not internalize it for what it is in our own in our own being kind of in but our I think, own bones. But I think, I still think there's value to that. And I think there is unconscious transformation that happens through those studies. Yes, we can study things True. to death as, and use it as a tool of avoidance. We see that at general assembly, let's do a five-year study. It's a way of putting off a decision really uh, sometimes, not always, but there's something also to that study. I know our, my, my church university, Presbyterian church, uh, you know, we, we pride ourselves on our relationship yeah, with Arizona sure. state university. Uh, we have faculty and staff over the years. We've had more. We don't have so many anymore as the faculty becomes more and more um, humanist and, and uh, non-religious, but mm. you know, people are like, Oh, we keep studying stuff, but where's the change? Where's the change? I'm like, well, tell me what you have learned. What have you learned through those studies? And they start, well, I guess we learned this. We learned that. I'm like, and how has that changed your perspective? Mm-hmm. And then to ask the question, and how has that changed your behavior? Because I, th- and they're like, well, it hasn't really. I'm like, really? Okay. 
well, what about this? What about that? What about that? Oh, well, yeah, I guess I don't do those. Yeah. Okay. So there is an unconscious change that the more we learn, you know, there's a, there's tons of stories about people who have traveled the world have a much more liberal perspective of life in general because they've, they've engaged a number of different cultures. There's value in that and that has changed their behavior and how they interact with people who are perceived as different than, than them, as well as people who are the same. So I think there's value in the study. I guess my hope is that we would get to the point where we could be more explicit about that change and start exploring, as Brene Brown would say, get curious about why am I reacting this way to X, Y, Z? What is that about? Where's that coming from? It's not just about a, some black and white right or wrong. There's something in here going on that says, you know, when, you know, when we make some change to our book of order that becomes controversial, why am I reacting that way? What about it makes me uncomfortable? Um, or what about it makes me so prideful and happy? You know, when, when churches were leaving our denomination, the, 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 the latest mass exodus, I mean, I was at the point with like, hey, how can I help you pack? I'm done with this. Mm-hmm. I'm so done with these tired old conversations where nobody's listening. And, you know, and I tried to understand, and even right now, I'm trying to understand people who are in a different political position than I am. Uh, with, with regards to our partisan politics, mm-hmm. I'm desperately trying to understand where that is coming from and, and, and how can they support some of the things that are happening right now. And, and these are parishioners. These are fellow colleagues. These are people who yeah. we share the same faith and yet they see things so differently. I'm, I'm trying desperately to understand that. But at some point, I'm also like, I don't feel like they're trying to understand me. And that, yeah. that's where it completely breaks down. It takes two to tango. And if mm-hmm. only one person is dancing, then it's no longer a tango. Oh, there go the dogs. Every episode, every <laughs> episode, the dogs. We need to be done. They're, they're saying you're so, done. It's over. Um, but, it, you know, and I think that I think there's value to those things. But again, like you said, or I think you were suggesting, it can't be an either or. It's a both end. Mm-hmm. Doing the deep thinking, doing the deep dive but then also exploring and teasing it out. I mean, that's what I think the parables are about. The parables aren't a black and white. I got somebody, I, I preached on um, the soil, you know, the, the sower of the seed, you know, and I said, but let's talk, let's start at the end instead of the beginning. And I, I used the good soil and talked about how there's translations out there or interpretations of that parable. It's not about who's in or out, who's a good Christian, who's a bad Christian, who's received the word and who hasn't. It's about justice. It's about where does justice thrive and where does it not thrive? And um, a person who's not part of my congregation said, oh, your homiletics professor would be so disappointed with you. That's a terrible interpretation. I'm like, it's a parable. It's meant to be teased out. It's meant to be grappled with. It's meant to be understood in multiple different ways. There's a reason why there are parables and not just, you know, here are the four steps that you have to follow to be a good Christian. It's, hey, here's something to think about. And there's all kinds of things. And I think we need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to play with our scripture. We need to be willing to tease out different uh, topics and go to where it's not comfortable and play with it. You didn't didn't tell him him that you really, he clearly doesn't know you very well. You wouldn't really have cared about. Yeah, I didn't go there. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't didn't go there. I didn't go there. (laughs) Well, I mean, because I'm so it's funny. I'm preaching this Sunday, and uh, I don't know why I've been on this Hebrew scripture 
kick. So I've never preached about Jacob's ladder. Um, And I don't have any idea yet where I'm going with it, but. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, yes. Jacob's ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm climbing the ladder, baby. I'm climbing the ladder. Stairway to heaven. No, Sorry. but, but uh, oh, I was, I, 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 something just struck me in the middle of, you know, reading it was like, wow. So why is it that two things that jump out is like, he, he actually laid down to go to sleep yeah. and then he had a dream, you know? And it's like, right. huh. I mean, something so basic and human those are the sort of the things that initially caught me. I have no idea what, you know, where that will all take me, but, um, yeah. See uh, what you just said. I think that's, what's important. We, especially as ministers, and I think this is one of our occupational hazards. We read a scripture and we start at the conclusion. Mm. And you just said, I don't know where that's going to take me. Shouldn't all of our sermons be that way? Mm hmm. Shouldn't everything we do going, I'm reading this, it's taking me this direction. I have no idea where it's going to end up. But going to what you said earlier, way earlier, we have this, I think, sometimes self-imposed pressure to have the answers. Oh, yeah. I don't have all the answers. I I feel like more of my sermons are like, I'm going to throw this at, this is the paint bucket. I'm going to throw it at the at the, at the canvas and see what sticks and the stuff that falls on the floor. You know what? I'm going to sweep that up too. put that in a new bucket and see what color it makes. Cause I have no idea. And that might come out in a different way at another painting or, should or, go to waste. or somebody else picks up one of those things that you kind of threw off there and you don't even know it. Right. right. I mean, is how many times do you preach something and somebody tells you that they got this thing and you went, what? I never said that. Exactly. <laughs> All the time. And or, I think that's where the Holy Spirit's moving. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Holy Spirit's moving in GA in the things that I'm not recognizing. And I think mm-hmm. that's, and I think that's all part of it. Yeah. Maybe that's Gail? part of, maybe that's Thank part you. of your podcast. <laughs> You're awesome. Hey, that's what the uh, Brewcast is all fun. about. Yeah. You're awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Brewcast. Um, you know, we need to just continue the conversations. I need to have you on like as a regular guest from now on. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, and uh, in the meantime, I'll, uh, I'll go try to find some money. It'll be a faith and coffee brewcast with Eric Letterman and Gail Doring or Gail Doring and Eric Letterman, whichever. I don't care. <laughs> we can, we can do, right. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Have a great day. Good luck with all your meetings. Thanks. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye Gail. Bye. You can contact Faith and Coffee at Eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com. Be sure to click on that like button. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Be of good courage. Know that you are loved and have a great day.
The opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC, in Chandler, Arizona. 